asked the question, is there any, any endurance sport event, whether it's nonprofit or for-profit, that doesn't have volunteers? Look at Susan G. Coleman Foundation. They have volunteers um, at their races nationwide. I can't think of an endurance sport event that doesn't use volunteers. Hello, I'm Jeff Sankoff, the TriDoc, an emergency physician, triathlon coach, and multiple Ironman finisher, and this is the August 22nd, 2023 edition of the TriDoc Podcast, coming to you from beautiful, sunny Denver, Colorado. Kind of a mixed bag from this past weekend. We had some exciting things going on around the world of multi-sport and beyond, as well as some not-so-great news emanating from both sides of the Atlantic. I guess we should dispense with the bad before we get to the good. Over in Ireland, there was some tragic news from the combined Ironman and 70.3 events in Cork, where not one, but two athletes succumbed during the swim. I've talked on this program a few times about the risks related to fatalities during the swim, but to my knowledge, this is the first time that two people have ever died in one race. One of the athletes was in his 60s, while the other was in his 40s. And this is, unfortunately, the profile for the kind of person who dies in this fashion. Male, 40 or older, and in a swim that was in colder water. And from what I've seen on social media, pretty darn challenging ocean conditions. It's incredibly disheartening that this continues to happen, and I, for one, simply do not know what the answer is for trying to make it stop. But it seems to me that eliminating the swim warm-up, especially in cold water venues, and especially when Ironman's own Swim Smart guidelines emphasize the importance of this exact thing, can't be helping. It also doesn't help that race organizers choose to send athletes off in conditions better suited for professional lifeguard competitions than for a triathlon. News reports out of Ireland suggest that the national governing body for triathlon there refused to sanction the race because of the rough ocean conditions, and yet the race organizers supposedly decided to go ahead anyways. If this proves to be true, then this strikes me as absolutely irresponsible, and I think heads are going to have to roll, and I'll be surprised if they don't. I'll also be surprised if the race returns. As I prepare for my own race in Indian Wells this December, another event with a notoriously cold water swim, I find myself wondering yet again why it is that we can't let athletes get in the water, especially when it's cold, and adjust to the temperature, rather than just hit the water for their race start when we know what that does physiologically, and that is the most dangerous time for cardiac events to happen in those who are at risk. I hate that we have to keep hearing about this, and I really do hope that something changes. The other bit of sad news came from British Columbia, and it was kind of on the opposite side of things. Rather than cold, it was related to heat, where initially small interior forest fires suddenly exploded in size and consumed parts of Kelowna on the northern shore of Lake Okanagan. Another fire southwest of Penticton, threatening the Ironman Canada bike course, also arose, and over the course of two days, fanned by dry conditions and severe winds, the entire region was suddenly and very dramatically turned into a conflagration. Race organizers there decided quickly that given the circumstances, Ironman Canada had to be cancelled a week in advance, and with very good reason. This is unfortunately the second Canadian race to be cancelled because of forest fires after Mont Tremblant 70.3 back in June, and as I said then, I fear that it's not going to be the last, either in Canada or elsewhere. Uh, 
The impact of climate change is all around us, and multi-sport is not immune. We're all facing extreme heat and weather on a regular basis, and the fire situation is simply catastrophic on the mainland and, as we've recently seen, in Hawaii. I had an athlete who was affected by the Ironman Canada cancellation, and I know how hard it was for her to deal with that, as well as how guilty she felt for what can only be described as kind of selfish disappointment in the face of what really mattered, given how much others were losing or faced losing. I told her, and I'll repeat it here for anyone who needs to hear it, look, it's perfectly normal to feel disappointed and sad. And it's also, quite frankly, acceptable to allow yourself to grieve even when you see what others are losing. You worked really hard for this, and you lost something also. No, in the grand scheme of things, it doesn't come close to the catastrophe that is the reality for those affected by these fires in a very real and personal way. But that doesn't take away from the fact that you too did suffer a loss as well. So go ahead and grieve. Be angry. Do whatever you do or need to do to get over the loss that you have experienced and then put it into perspective so that you can move on. Probably best to be angry and grieve quietly and not on social media, lest people get the wrong message, but for your own mental health and well-being, do take some time off to mourn this loss for what it represents, a lot of hard work and dedication that you didn't get to pay off. Okay, now how about some good news then? Over on the other side of the world, in Singapore, this past weekend, the PTO had another successful and pretty exciting event in the form of the PTO Open Asia. Ashley Gentle once again proved her continued dominance on the women's side, though it was really nice to see how Chelsea Sodaro and Anne Haug had incredible run splits to secure their own podium positions. Lucy Charles Barkley was back racing again after time off from another injury. I shall not opine on that yet again. I've said my piece on Lucy before. What was most surprising, though, about Lucy was that for the first time ever, she was beaten out of the water by someone that, personally, I had never heard of. Whether that is a reflection of the swimming prowess of Spaniard Sara Perez Sala or shows some slippage on behalf of Lucy, I suppose time will tell. Once on the bike, Ashley Gentle took the lead and never looked back, though one wonders what might have happened if not for a weird bit of bad luck for Anne Haug. Haug had some bit of tape get caught in her rear wheel and lost something like two minutes getting it fixed. She ended up surging back on the run, finishing in second, only 145 back of Gentle. I, for one, would have loved to have seen the battle between those two women in the last few kilometers were it not for that random piece of trash. Maybe the biggest story of the day, though, was Chelsea Sodaro sprinting through the field with a run split faster even than Haug's in order to grab third. And over on the men's side, we saw another exciting and just amazing dominant performance by Christian Blumenfeld, who came out of the water just a handful of seconds back of the lead pack, surged to the front on the bike, and then just absolutely dominated with the fastest run split of the day to come up with another big win. Jason West once again had a very solid day, but really, really showed his uh, prowess on the run, coming up strong all the way from fifth into third for the final podium spot. And friend of the podcast, Andrew Patterson, who lives in Singapore and produces the ever-excellent Ironman Hacks blog, was on the ground and armed with a press pass and got lots of really great video interviews with many of the pros right after they finished. So head over to the Ironman Hacks website and check them out. On the show today, I'm joined by Juliet Hockman yet again for the Medical Mailbag, during which we will examine the pros and cons of using vitamin C as a performance aid in endurance sport. 
Vitamin C has been advocated for decades as a booster of immune function, a cold remedy, and a powerful antioxidant, and in recent years has become popular for helping with performance. Well, what does the science say about all of these things? We'll take a look and let you know. Later, there's been a lot of talk about the disappearance of volunteers from events of late. An article in Triathlete not long ago was titled pretty much exactly that, and some events have been forced to cancel or change formats because of an inability to get enough volunteers to manage a course. This year, when I couldn't race in the Boulder 70.3 event, I had a chance to volunteer for the first time in a while, though I have done so a handful of times in the past, and once again, I found it to be a really rewarding experience. Given the conversation about volunteers disappearing and my own observations at what a humongous undertaking it is to get such a large group of folks together to staff these events, I wanted to explore the process of what goes on behind the scenes a, a little closer. So for today's episode, I'm happy to bring you a conversation that I had with Jen Zabo. Jen is a business development manager at Colorado University in Boulder and is the volunteer coordinator for the Ironman Boulder 70.3. She shares what it takes to get volunteers for such a big event and her thoughts on what it's like to get close to the start time and still be short. And that's coming up in just a little while. Before all of that, I want to take a moment to thank all of my Patreon supporters of this podcast once again, who have decided that for about the price of a cup of coffee per month, they could sign up to support this program and in doing so get access to bonus interviews and other segments that come out about every month. In addition, for North American subscribers at the $10 per month level of support, I have a special thank you gift in the form of a pretty cool Boko TriDoc podcast running hat. So visit my Patreon site today at patreon.com forward slash TriDoc podcast and become a supporter so that you too can get access and maybe this cool gift as well. And as always, thanks so much in advance just for considering. It's time again for the Medical Mailbag, that segment of the podcast when I'm joined by my friend and colleague, the, for now, reigning world champion at the 70.3 distance. Oh. That, that comes to an comes to an end tomorrow, <laughs> but for one more day, I think it's worth celebrating. You flex for you one will day. Always, yeah, you will always be a world champion to me, Juliet. Well, and uh, <laughs> Juliet Hawkman, welcome back once again to the Thanks. podcast. Thanks. Good to be here. Juliet, I understand you have a question for me. I do. So you, as I, probably grew up hearing from our parents that vitamin C was really important in terms of fighting colds and doing all kinds of great things for our bodies, eat your citrus, drink your orange juice, etc., to fight the common cold. And then, of course, as we've grown up and we've learned more about antioxidants, we understand that citrus and vitamin C help with antioxidants, which fight all of the free radicals racing around in our system, particularly after exercise. So you know, a lot of athletes and a lot of people in general spend a lot of money on vitamin C supplements, emergency, airborne, all of these things that we take before we get on airplanes, etc. But what you're telling me is that there's a recent study or collection of studies out there that tells us that actually all of this vitamin C supplementation is complete overkill and we don't need it. Can you talk about that a little more? I would love to. There's nothing I like better than taking the tar out of the need for supplements, especially vitamins. I think vitamin C, though, is a really interesting one. It's got a great history. I'm a big fan, or I was a big fan of Cheers, and Cliff Clavin always struck me as an interesting character on that show because he referred to himself as a cesspool of useless information. I kind of share that characteristic with Cliff. I'm a bit of a one of these people who just kind of knows a lot of little bits and pieces of things that are not particularly relevant on a daily basis, 
But for the point of this conversation, I happen to know a little bit of an anecdote that I think uh, will be interesting and pertinent. Back in the days of uh, exploration, overseas exploration, uh, I'm sure most people have heard at some point of the disease called scurvy. Scurvy, as it was learned a long time after many people died from it, was related to the lack of vitamin C because, as it turns out, human beings are unable to synthesize that vitamin, and yet it is incredibly vital for many of our bodily processes. Well, in the 1500s, when Jacques Cartier, the French explorer, was uh, traveling across the Atlantic and making his trips over to what he founded as New France and eventually became Quebec as part of Canada, he had many of his men on his ship succumbing to that illness. And he reached out to the indigenous peoples in uh, the area of what would later become Montreal and asked them for help. And they pointed him to a tree growing in the area, which uh, we now call the white cedar. And they told him if he took the branches of the white cedar and steeped it in boiling water and then had his men drink the tea that was produced from that, it would restore their constitution. And sure enough, they were correct because, as it turns out, the white cedar is very, very rich in vitamin C. And so... Uh, one of the many anecdotes of silliness that I happen to carry around uh, with me, and, and and yes, you're you're going to say uh, I know I'm going to add to your cesspool of useless information, which may make you look more impressive at cocktail parties by reminding you that British sailors for centuries were called limeys because they discovered that one of the ways to fight scurvy was to suck on limes on long sea voyages because limes kept for a long time in the ship's hold and they were able to pick it up at various ports of call as the United Kingdom took over most of the world at one point. And they found that it would fight, yeah, the scurvy that, you know, was pretty awful for sailors. Their gums would get all bloody and their teeth would fall out. Ugh, it's awful. So yeah, slimy. So right there with you on the historical and nautical background of vitamin C. Always happy to work that in. We should try to find other ways to work kind of these little <laughs> completely random little facts into the, into the show. Yeah, scurvy is or was really a terrible disease for centuries. Overseas exploration was really where it tended to hit home the worst. Uh, we don't see it very frequently, but we do occasionally run into it. And uh, it is invariably in people with uh, very poor diets, uh, nutrient deficient diets. And it manifests as a breakdown in connective tissues because vitamin C is an integral cofactor in the formation of collagen. So people who develop scurvy tend to have bleeding from blood vessels that are leaky. They tend to have a breakdown in their gums, as you said. They have wounds that won't heal very well. And uh, it can result in brain issues with altered mental status and eventually death. So a very, very real and serious problem. But you don't really need a lot of vitamin C in order to avoid having scurvy. And that's why just sucking on a lime every day or two is generally enough to keep it away. And over time, vitamin C has been propagated as a a cure-all for a whole bunch of things because vitamin C was recognized as an antioxidant back in the 50s. That just simply means it has a, a lot of rich double bonds within its structure. And because of that, it's able to pick up a lot of free radical species. These are generally super oxygen kinds of uh, molecules that get formed within our cells on a regular basis, but more so when we're under periods of stress, either from illness or from exercise. 
And several people, including famous people like Linus Pauling, who was a, a very successful and very uh, important chemist in the uh, mid part of the last century, I believe he won a, a Nobel Prize at some point. He was a, a very strong advocate for vitamin C. He used to take, uh, I believe he took a gram or two grams of vitamin yeah. C every day and used to talk all the time about how he never got sick because uh, he attributed that to taking so much vitamin C. And for many years, vitamin C became a hallmark of advertising by the citrus industry, talking about how drinking your orange juice would keep you from getting colds. As you mentioned, Airborne, Emergency, those are products that advocate for vitamin C use in order to prevent getting sick when you go on an airplane. The reality is, unfortunately, not quite that exciting. It turns out that vitamin C is not the panacea that is promised. Research has been done over the years that shows quite conclusively that vitamin C has no important immune effects in preventing colds, no important immune effects in shortening the duration of illness. And while it is excellent at preventing scurvy, it really doesn't prevent anything else, which is kind of sad, but there it is. (laughs) Wow. So our mothers (laughs) were wrong. Yeah. Well, they were misled. Let's just put that. Yeah. Then there is that free radical part of it, and that's what has led in the past uh, decade or so to this idea that vitamin C might be useful for athletes who are looking to perform high-intensity intervals, high-intensity exercise, the idea being that when they do so, they're creating more and more of these free radicals, super oxygen species, and those can cause damage within the cells. So the theory goes, if I have an abundance of antioxidant free radical scavengers in the form of, say, vitamin C, maybe I could do more of these kinds of intervals, scavenge those away, prevent intracellular damage, and as a consequence, be able to push myself even harder and get more and more fitness. So over the past decade or so, there's been a handful of studies that have looked at vitamin C as a supplement for exactly this purpose. And just this past month, a study came out entitled Vitamin C Supplementation and Athletic Performance, a Review. I love that. That is a perfect title. See, they went to the the Jeff Sankoff title writing school. Very short, concise, tells you exactly what it's about. They left out the conclusion, but I can tell you the conclusion. They basically looked at 14 studies, 11 of which found either no benefit of vitamin C or worse, negative results, suggesting that vitamin C actually negatively impacted people's ability to perform. There were three that did show some positive results. None of them were particularly earth-shattering. And when you put that into context of 11 studies showing the opposite or even worse, then uh, I think those three studies can be discounted pretty much out of hand. So the overall review of the research suggests quite clearly that vitamin C should not be used as a supplement for athletic success. And in fact, there are other studies that have come out in the last couple of years that show exactly the same thing. Uh, There was a study that looked at uh, vitamin C related to physiological states, uh, looking at sleep and activity that showed that in some cases, vitamin C actually might help with sleep states, but it showed quite clearly that it actually negatively impacted performance, which is unusual because we've talked in the past about how sleep is so important for physical performance. The study showed quite clearly vitamin C did not a very good job for that. Another study, antioxidants in athletes' basic nutrition considerations towards a guideline for the intake of vitamin C and vitamin E. This was a study that looked at two different vitamins and talked about supplementing because vitamin E is another one of these antioxidants. And this one found very clearly 
The data suggests that antioxidative requirements of well-trained endurance athletes can be covered by dosages equivalent or close to the recommended daily allowances, which can be provided by a balanced diet. In addition, it can be suggested that extremely high dosages of antioxidant vitamins that are usually consumed by athletes in the form of supplements actually don't offer any additional benefit, but in contrast, appear in many cases to be harmful. And finally, another study I came across looked at vitamin D. Vitamin D is something we've talked about previously regarding bone health. So a little bit different. Vitamin D for bone health clearly does have benefits, but this was something where older patients who are often felt to be vitamin D deficient uh, were given a variety of different regimens, including vitamin D supplementation, as well as omega-3 fatty acid supplementation, and looked at different combinations of these. These were patients who were, uh, sorry, these were participants who were over 70 years old, but it was a very large study and it was placebo controlled. So really the best kind of study, over 2000 participants over three years and no benefit whatsoever to any combination of vitamins and omega fatty acids turning out that uh, these things, not detrimental, but definitely did not help. And so the end result of all of this, save your money. As my daughter has said, vitamins and other kinds of supplements really just leads to having expensive pee because our body will use what we need, which tends to be a fraction of what we're taking. And the rest of it, you're just getting rid of. Okay. So I hear all of that. Let's talk for just a second kind of brass tacks about balanced diet as it pertains to vitamin C. Because if vitamin C's benefit to us, it kind of falls into two buckets, right? One is the fact that it helps produce collagen, which helps repair connective tissue like ligaments and tendons and, and skin. Um, and then the other bucket that vitamin C is so useful for, as you pointed out, is its role as an antioxidant. And, you know, I, I sort of have this image in my brain of, you know, the free radicals versus the antioxidants doing battle with each other. It sounds like something in our current political system. But so, you know, vitamin C is important in these two different buckets. So as we look at what we eat over the course of the day, you know, unfortunately, oranges and, and peaches and, and blueberries don't come with the number of milligrams of vitamin C, you know, slapped on their skin. So what is enough? And what does it look like if we don't take supplements? What does it look like over the course of our day? Are we sort of talking, you know, have three oranges, and you'll be fine, or have a glass of orange juice and a peach and some blueberries. And what does that actually look like? Because I mean, all of us fall into the trap of getting to the end of the day and think, holy mackerel, you know, we haven't I haven't had any, I haven't had a piece of fruit today because I've been so busy or whatever it is. So what does that look like specifically? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And I think it goes back to this idea of the recommended daily allowance, right? Those, those things have been developed by different government agencies and they are based on this notion of, okay, how much do we need to stay healthy? But it's not something that I think we all are aware of. And that lack of understanding, that lack of knowledge is something that the supplement makers have leveraged. And whenever there's an unknown, these marketers come in and fill that gap. So they have convinced parents, like you mentioned parents, right? Our parents are behind this. I mean, where what are the most popular vitamins out there? Flintstones. That is the most popular vitamin because parents across this continents, North America and, you know, Canada, United States, parents have been taught that they need to give their kids Flintstone vitamins, because that's the only way they're going to get adequate amount of vitamins and Flintstone vitamins, 
contain several times the recommended daily allowance of most of the vitamins that are in there. Well, the recommended daily allowance for vitamin C is only 90 milligrams. That's a tiny amount. Compare that to the supplements that are 500 or 1,000 milligrams that people are taking. Again, your kidneys aren't going to keep all of that. Your body doesn't store vitamin C. You use what you need, which is about 90 milligrams, and the rest you just pee away. So, um, okay. So I just looked, I just looked it up. One orange has between 60 and 80 milligrams of vitamin C. One orange is 60 to 80 milligrams. Right. And a glass of orange juice is going to be about the same. And a handful of blueberries is going to supplement that. And uh, so many of our foods are fortified. So we don't, like I said, we don't synthesize it, but we have so many ways of getting it. As long as you're eating a, you know, a healthy amount of vegetables and fruit, you are going to get more than enough vitamin C in your daily diet. Now, there are other vitamins. There's no question we have to work a little harder to get. Vitamin E is something we have to work a little bit harder to get. I mean, we have to make sure we're eating balanced. Are you eating enough fish? Are you eating enough different kinds of vegetables? We know about iron. We've talked about iron, about how difficult it is to make sure you're getting adequate amounts of iron. And it may be for some people that they have to supplement with iron for that reason, especially women. That being said, the vast majority of these things do not require supplementation because as long as we're eating a nice, healthy, balanced diet, you are going to get more than enough of what you need and you don't have to be spending money on these supplements. And let's not forget, these supplements aren't inexpensive. They're, they tend to be pretty expensive and they're just not necessary for most people. What about if we know that it's so easy to get what we need in terms of vitamin C from a couple of pieces of fruit a day, what about the antioxidants piece? Is there a, a numeric value that you can put on a, an item of food that gives us the antioxidants we need to, over the course of the day? Yeah, I'm not familiar with anything that talks about that. Antioxidants are just sort of bandied about as this, you know, thing we need to have. And, you know, foods are rich in antioxidants, but that, that's never quantified, right? It's right. always this sort of like qualitative amount. It's never a quantitative amount. And I'm not sure that it's ever been quantified in terms of how much we need to have because antioxidants come in so many different forms and flavors. So I think the most important thing is, again, having a balanced diet is going to ensure that you're getting enough of these things. We as athletes, uh, I, I don't think that there's any need to, to overconsume in any one specific kind of thing, but there's no question having more fruits and vegetables, that's not a bad thing. That's probably yeah. a good thing. That's going to get right. you more of what you need. Again, we don't store this stuff. So if you're having too much, you're probably just going to eliminate it naturally. But there's generally no danger. I will I will say like I, I, somebody reached out to me recently because I uh, had one of my articles about beetroot juice published. It was republished. And somebody saw it and they asked me about uh, beetroot juice and kidney stones. So Beets are very, very high in uh, a chemical called oxalates, and oxalates are known to be a problem for people who form kidney stones because they come out of solution within the filtrate in the kidney, and they can actually sit there and form stones. So people who have, who form kidney stones have to be careful with beets. They can't eat beets. Similarly, vitamin C is metabolized to oxalate. And so if you have a problem with kidney stones, you have to be really careful about taking vitamin C supplements. And there are going to be these kinds of things where if you are prone to certain kinds of health issues like kidney stones, you want to be careful with certain types of vegetables. But for the most part, you're going to be fine to eat 
an excess of vegetables and fruits because you're not going to have the, too many problems. And we know that you know, if you want to go to a Mediterranean type diet, which we know is higher in antioxidants, great, great. You're going to get your 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 more than an abundant amount there. But even for a typical Western diet, and I don't mean the Western fast food diet, but even for a <laughs> typical Western diet, you're you're going to be getting adequate amounts of what we need. And just stay away from the refined foods. Stay away from too much of the processed and fried stuff, and you're going to do fine. Yeah, I mean, I think you know, we were talking about this a little bit earlier, but it's, it's easy for people who've been in the sport for a long time or have been athletes their whole life, or, or perhaps, you know, cross over to the medical field like you do to speak sort of off the cuff about a balanced diet and what that looks like. But I know that for some of my athletes, especially some of the younger athletes who are, you know, living by themselves for the first time, cooking for the first time, et cetera, you know, perhaps they, just not thinking about it, they're not super organized, they don't have a huge budget, whatever, they are not really eating a balanced diet, even though they're well educated, and they're, they're trying to think about it. But they're doing quick and easy things, they're not really fueling for performance. And yeah, they, they are kind of falling down a little bit on these natural foods kind of shopping the outside of the supermarket, right? Because it takes longer, you're only cooking for one, you're working hard at your job, whatever it is. So I think it's, it's worthwhile sort of touching back on you know, this is a simple concept of the athlete plate or the balanced diet, particularly in terms of fueling performance for fueling athletic performance. I could not agree more. And, and we've had a couple of nutritionists on this program, Life Sports own Celine Evans, Alex Larson. They've both been here and they've both emphasized numerous times that nutrition doesn't have to be complicated. But something that it does have to do is it has to be remembered how important it is about fueling. Uh, too often we see athletes get into trouble because they emphasize this idea of losing weight and they don't fuel adequately. And that causes more problems than it's worth. We have to remember that nutrition's primary reason is to keep us fueled so that we can do the things that we want to do, perform the way we want. And if we fuel ourselves properly and we don't take on excess calories, we don't take on high fat foods, then weight loss will come about on its own in a more natural way. And we don't have to emphasize weight loss, but instead emphasize healthy eating. And for people who are having trouble with nutrition and are, are having trouble getting their head wrapped around what that means in terms of making sure they're getting the right amounts of calories, the right amounts of these micro nutrients, then engaging with a nutrition coach is going to be the best decision you can make because I have had athletes work with both Celine and Alex, and they have just raved about that experience because they have gotten so much out of it and have come to realize that it's made them a much better athlete and a much healthier person. So yeah, uh, I couldn't, I couldn't agree with that more. I mean, I've been an athlete my whole life. I was an Olympic athlete in my early twenties. And as I turned to triathlon in my, you know, my middle age, essentially, I was still making all kinds of mistakes. And I spent three or four months working with actually Celine, working with a nutritionist. And I just learned so much during that time. And it really helped kind of turn my thinking around on a few things. And it, it just helped a lot. So I couldn't agree more. It just, I think that athletes, you know, who are curious about this, you just have to think of it as this is part of your ongoing education as an athlete. It's yet another tool. You're learning about equipment. You're learning about transitions. You're learning about fitness. You're learning about hill climbing and swim technique. And you're learning about nutrition. It's just part of the puzzle, I think, for especially longer course athletes. 
Yeah, couldn't agree more. Well, it's been another uh, great conversation, Juliet. I can't thank you enough for being here. If you have a question that you'd like uh, us to consider on the medical mailbag, there's a couple of ways that you can submit those to us. The first is through email. You can reach me at tri underscore doc at iCloud.com. And the second is through our private Facebook group. Just have a look for the TriDoc podcast on Facebook. You will find the group there. Answers the three very easy questions. I will gain you, I will grant you admittance. And then once you're in there, you can join the conversation and submit your questions, and we will be happy to entertain them here on the Medical Mailbag. Juliet, thank you so much for joining me. Enjoy your last few hours as the reigning world champion, and we will see you again for the next segment. Thanks, Jeff. Have a good day. My guest on the podcast today is Jen Zabo. Jen moonlights as a volunteer director while balancing a life of a senior event planner on Colorado University or CU Boulder's camps, campus. Soon, she will be a business development manager. She started out with just volunteering as she progressed in her own athletic pursuits. She was taught the practice to volunteer for every four races you do, and it turns out that she actually likes volunteering far more than she likes racing, and things kind of spiraled from there. I met Jen when I volunteered at the Boulder 70.3 earlier this year, and I wanted, her ha- I wanted to have her on the program to talk about all of the things that go on behind the scenes for a volunteer coordinator at such a big event. So I'm glad that I was able to corral her for a short time just to uh, share that with all of us. Jen, thanks so much for joining me on the TriDoc Podcast. Thanks for having me. So I want to hear a little bit about what your progression was from a volunteer to a volunteer coordinator for such a big event like the Boulder 70.3. Well, I'd say it started to started in 2004 when I started to become an athlete, started to exercise, change my lifestyle. I was grossly overweight, unhealthy, and just didn't know anything about endurance sports exercising. And my brother suckered me into joining a training group for the Boulder Boulder popular event here in Boulder, Colorado, happening every Memorial Day. And uh, I was very much suckered into that, but I had a great time. I learned a lot about myself and the direction of life that I wanted to take. Um, But it was through that coaching and through uh, the then director of the Boulder Boulder Training Club um, that I learned for every four races that you do, you should volunteer for one. Um, And for me, that really gave me... um, well, first, it, it helps establish a community. So number one, volunteering uh, just gives you back, gives you a community, gives you people to know, and you get to know the races and the racers. But second of all, it gives you a behind, behind-the-scenes look of how things work. And when you're running by or jogging or walking or riding your bike and you're going by an aid station so quickly, like you don't even think about how does that water get to where it is and where do they get the water from and how does all this work and who sets it up? And so that's where that curiosity came. And I just really started to enjoy volunteering. And so then I just started volunteering at stroke and stride races and small 5Ks or Denver marathons or, you know, just kind of grew from there. And we did it as a group, as a training group as well. So it was a group effort. And then as I progressed and learned to be a triathlete in my athletic event, athletic progression, I didn't know anything about triathlon at all. I just was like, I think I want to do that. I, I want to ride a bike. That sounds great. I want to swim. That sounds awesome. Uh, so I started volunteering more in the um, 
triathlon world. And that just grew to what it was. And Ironman came out um, when they bought uh, the Boulder Peak at the time. And that's how I got introduced to Ironman as the organization. But, you know, I've always been always been with Without Limits, which is a local Colorado race group or race organization, triathlon and cycling and other endurance sports events, and then also racing underground. And it just kind of sprung board from there. People saw that I can organize people and they said, you know, 24 hours of triathlon was in Colorado a couple times. And I got asked to, when I was not foolishly participating, I got asked to coordinate volunteers. See how that works? It's like, you go and do it. I volunteered at uh, Mount Evans Ascent one year. And then I went went and did the race four preceding years after that. So that's how you just sort of get involved is either you do the race and want to know more about it or you volunteer for it and then you wind up doing the race. That's pretty incredible. I, you know, you mentioned the behind the scenes parts about how things get set up and, and all of that. And I, I noticed that because I'll be riding on the Boulder course in the week or the days leading up to the event. And I'll start to see the telltale signs, the tape on the road, oh, water here, Gatorade here, things like that. So I know that there's so much advanced work that goes into it. Give us a sense of the size and the scale here, specifically for the Boulder 70.3. How many volunteers are we talking about and how many places are they distributed to? Um, Well, we aspire to have a little over a thousand volunteer spots. Um, and that doesn't necessarily mean unique volunteers because many people volunteer for more than one job, so to speak. But they are, you know, volunteers have uh, a presence everywhere on course. So you're going to see them on the water. First, you're going to see them when you get off your shuttle bus in Boulder, directing people where to go at four o'clock in the morning, pitch dark. Um, so we have volunteers helping the athletes get off the shuttle bus and kind of direct them to where they need to go in transition. We have volunteers that are actually in the transition area sort of saying, you know, water refill is here, bathrooms are here, swim out is, it, or excuse me, swim in is here, the start is here, run out is here, you know, j- bike out is here, kind of, kind of, in the sense, just being the calm for the athletes in the morning. Because when you pick up a packet, when an athlete comes and picks up their packet or drops off their bike, it is completely different than it is race morning. More fencing goes up, directional way you can get places change. And so if you're scoping out the the area just of the start of the race, the day before when you pick up your race packet, it is completely different the next day. It's amazing. Little fairies come in, known as Ironman staff. And we completely change it so that we can accommodate the race. And again, most of that's with fencing and soft fencing that has marketing on it. It just completely changes overnight. So those athletes are, or excuse me, those volunteers are vital in the morning to assist those athletes because they don't have their bearings about them. First of all, they're nervous about the race. So why not have us there to help kind of get where they're going? So from the very beginning, you have volunteers to the very end of the race when you receive your medal, water, and ball cap. And it's, it's, it's not, they're not playing a role of just kind of being there. Volunteers aren't fully informed. Most of them show up on race day. Half of them are high school students, if not 90% of them, or a great percent of them are high school students who know nothing about triathlon. So, so they're just there to be a presence and sort of in a bright colored shirt, which we did very well this year with our bright green. 
and just kind of being a presence and saying, oh, look for us, for an athlete, look at us. We have some sort of directional for you. We tell you where to go, or maybe we're in, at an aid station, or maybe this is a turn for a bike on the bike course, or maybe this is a directional to go on this path on the run, or we're out on the water on our uh, kayaks or stand up paddle boards. And we're just here to give you some sort of like assurance that somebody sees you. Um, and the swim is big for that, uh, making sure they felt seen, especially if they aren't feeling comfortable in the moment. And how hard is it to get all of the volunteers that you need? You mentioned you, you're bringing in a lot of high school students. I imagine that in itself has some challenges. So how hard is it every year to get the numbers that you need? It varies from year to year. We are lucky that the Boulder, the relationship between Boulder volunteers and the Boulder market for Ironman was established and established prior to my taking over as a volunteer director, being involved in the program without being a volunteer. I was a volunteer from the beginning, but that was already established. And so we have quite a few groups that are established that come back year after year after year. The people are different because high school students graduate, businesses change or you leave an organization. So that changes. But the the core of it, you know, we always have Loveland High School who comes comes down and does our athlete check-in. And it's always their volleyball team. Now, again, those students since, you know, coming into the market, those students have graduated, have gone on. Some are coaches of their own volleyball teams. And now they're bringing their volunteer from another high school but we have organizations like the Autism Society of Boulder County, who is regular, and they bring their volunteers. And again, those kids grow up or those adults move on, but that organization is, of itself comes in. We reach out every year to almost every high school athletic director and say, you know, do you have a high school team that we can get out here? Here's what we can do. You know, you provide it, talk, it, it really helps in the moment the team learn how to communicate with one another and how to you know, they have a job to do and who's going to do what and how the tasks are going to be delegated. Uh, I love welcoming high school students who want to take a lead role and sort of lead that team. And we call them captains within Ironman. And it really, first of all, it looks great on college resumes, volunteering, but also leading the group, giving them leadership qualities. And But I like to work with them too and give them, give them this opportunity to showcase that they can be leaders. And we really work closely with that. So yeah, I, it, it takes a lot. It's a lot of 3 a.m. emails or 10 p.m. emails, Google, Google searching for groups, civil air patrols. We reached out to this year, just num a number of different organizations that you may want to tap into volunteering. And give us a sense of what the timeline is for your work on this. When do you start? I mean, the race this year was June, early June. I think it was June 6th or something. But mm -hmm. when do you start working on this? And does it everything just end on June 7th? Or is there some kind of post afterwards? Great, great question. It would vary in timelines. Generally, I like, I've had the practice of six months out in Starting in 2020, where we didn't have races, but I worked less as a volunteer director on an individual race and more with Ironman's program itself, developing some practices and, and procedures, whatever we could do to keep ourselves, keep myself of value during the pandemic. In 2021, I wasn't an assigned volunteer director per se per, for a race. I had actually given that role up and, and 
gone out and worked at different races to help either develop volunteer directors or worked at races in new markets just to be an extra support. So it wasn't until last year that I came back kind of into the volunteer directing for Ironman for particular races. I would love a six months out beat up, but you don't always have that. So we started, we really started about mid February of 2023 for the Boulder 70.3 Ironman race and started our recruiting. First thing you do is obviously reach out to groups you've had before, send emails to previous individuals who had signed up that may not have been part of a group and just kind of recruit from there. It's all, all about a spreadsheet. It's all about placing groups, knowing how many, you know, it's conversations with your race director. Uh, I will say that the race director and the volunteer director have to have a really good open communication, often communication relationships so that changes, as you probably know, the Boulder race completely changed in between February and June, every course changed. So volunteer locations changed, the number of volunteers for those spots changed. Um, uh, so having that communication ahead of time and particularly in the moment when those things happen, um, I come into things like, okay, well, this will affect the volunteers this way. How will they get to that location? If all the roads to the reservoir is closed, how do I get volunteers there? Um, so that, that communication has to happen. So we really tried to do six months out, but this year we only did, um, I think it was four and a half months prior. And then after the race, we're blessed that the Ironman Foundation contributes grants into communities in which they race in that we you know, want to create a positive and tangible change in race environments. We come in, we make a huge impact. Sometimes it's an inconvenience impact, but we make a huge impact in race environments. So after the race with volunteer groups, we sort of have a, a, a pool of, of grant funding that we then distribute out to the groups that came in and volunteered. And so that's what we do after the race. And there's always, you know, naturally there's always a thank you that goes out in 2022, my co-volunteer director and I sent out a survey because we really wanted to see how, you know, we, we didn't feel as successful as we thought we could. And we know that because people voice stuff to us and, but we wanted feedback from everybody. And we really took that feedback to heart to make those changes for 2023. So there's a lot of post-communication as well. Are there specific positions that are more difficult to recruit volunteers into? Green team or environmental is the hardest to recruit volunteers to. We did our best this year. Uh, we put a thousand dollar grant toward that, and it would be you know vary throughout the week or throughout the day uh, of race day. Um, and we were unsuccessful in getting a group. Nobody wants to do green team. But again, I talked about that impact um, when you have a race such as Ironman Boulder seventy point three. When you have a race of that. Most things take place at the reservoir. Spectators come in on a on a shuttle bus. Athletes come in on a shuttle bus. So they're not going anywhere. That's a huge impact on the reservoir. And that leaves a huge environmental impact as well. And so we really needed to focus on ensuring that we had that covered. Uh, we, we did have some coverage and we did it ourselves as a team. Uh, volunteer team, we knew that that was a priority because we didn't have individual volunteers or a group. So we just kind of took it off on ourselves to ensure that we weren't leaving the Boulder Reservoir as a wreck. Unfortunately, spectators and athletes themselves tend to leave a lot of stuff behind. We accumulate a lot of trash that was probably unnecessary. 
So we, uh, that's probably the biggest, uh, the hardest thing to recruit for. Easiest thing to recruit for is finish line by far. People want to put medals on people. And is volunteering, is, is your job also to recruit for medical or is that separate? Uh, yes and no. Uh, it depends on the market. Uh, we're blessed in this market that uh, the Boulder market that um, the lead doctor has uh, quite a few med students. And so we had 20 to 30 medical students of varying years in their um, medical education uh, come out. And then we do have a captain who just kind of helps navigate people. We do have medical or what we call in the medical tent who are non-medical people. And that could be database That could be people who are driving, you know, helping the med team get to an athlete if they need to get out on a gator or a golf cart or however they get out there. Just simple greeters who are probably welcoming people in, doing some intake as well as that database. So it it just varies depending on the market. But so I have not done a ton of hard recruiting for medical, but it does happen in other markets. I don't know if you've heard this before, you might have, you might not have, but there has been intermittently over the years commentary in various social media, take it for what it's worth, it's social media, in the past about the reliance on volunteers by Ironman. People have said, hey, we're paying a lot of money here. It seems a little bit crazy that Ironman has to also recruit this gigantic pool of volunteers in order to maximize their profits? Why not pay people to come out and do some of the things that volunteers do, a green team, for example? I'm curious, what's your attitude towards that sentiment? Well, I'm not going to say it's not happened that they haven't had to bring or pay people to come out that aren't under the grant grant funding. I know that happens in other races in other markets in North America. I, I, I guess I don't really have an opinion on if it happens or if it doesn't, because I don't have that experience per se. And I don't think it's a negative thing. I think it becomes negative when the athlete relies on the volunteer for something that they're not skilled to have. And that's maybe, you know, if it's a two loop course and the athlete is asking the volunteer, do I turn, do I turn, do I turn? And the volunteer says, yes, because there is a turn there. You might go straight for lap two and turn to return to the finish that's unfair to put that volunteer in that position because they don't know what lap, you know, athlete 2,573 is on. There's no way for them to track that. And so I don't think a staff person or a paid staff would know that either. So I'm not sure. Yeah, I guess what I'm getting at, I guess what I'm getting at is, is some of the sentiment that's been expressed before is if you offered pay, if you offered a salary, It'd be a lot easier to get people to come out and stand there at the, at these aid stations. Is that a reasonable comment? And I, I want to be clear. I, I I do not feel that way. I actually think that the volunteer ethic is a good one, but I do understand and I do recognize the point that's being made. This is a for-profit corporation and it seems a little bit, I don't know, odd is not the word, but that's the word that's been used in in some of these comments that uh, it seems odd that a for-profit corporation is relying so heavily on such a large group of volunteers. I would ask the question, is there any any endurance sport event, whether it's nonprofit or for-profit, that doesn't have volunteers? Look at Susan G. Coleman Foundation. They have volunteers um, at their races nationwide. I can't think of an endurance sport event that doesn't 
use volunteers. Yeah, that's an excellent point. And I think a very valid response uh, to that commentary. And like I said, I, I don't necessarily agree with it. I happen to think that your point about racing for and then volunteering one is an excellent one. I think volunteerism is something that everybody, it benefits the volunteers most of all. I have volunteered not nearly as much as you have and certainly not to the four to one ratio, but I have volunteered in a capacity as in the medical tent. I volunteered at Boulder and I have always enjoyed it and I always found it to be a very worthwhile experience and you get so much more out of it than what you give. So I I think it's something that we need as a society to recognize as an incredibly valuable experience. And if it's if it happens to be at an event where somebody else is profiting, I don't think that diminishes the the importance of the experience. So I I hear what you're saying and I, I, I agree with you. I think that it remains a very important and and quite frankly necessary part of these experiences. And let's face it, getting assistance from a volunteer to me is much better than getting it from someone who's who's being paid for it. <laughs> their enthusiasm and their desire to be there is much higher. So. Agreed. Agreed. And I think it makes, as an athlete, I think it makes you, or it helps you like appreciate the opportunity that you have in front of you. I, you know, I don't, I don't do the business side of things or look at budgets uh, for anybody's races for that, but I can't imagine what your entry fee would be if you were entered into a race and all thousand volunteers. And that's, that's just for the Boulder 70.3. When we had the Boulder full Ironman, we had close to 3000, if not over 3000 volunteers. I can't imagine what that would cost. Yeah. It's amazing to me that uh, these events, all of them, not just Ironman, but all of these huge events, they're always so successful in getting as many volunteers as they do. It, it's a testament, I think, to the presence or the the acceptance of volunteerism and uh, the the fact that volunteerism remains an important component of, as you said, I think high school education, because that seems to be where a lot of these volunteers are coming from. Where uh, is the rest of your volunteers coming from? You said a large proportion are, are high school students, but uh, are, how many of them are, say, family members of participants? How many of them are, I don't know, locals in the community just being out there because they want to be out there? I would say maybe 5% are, yeah, maybe 5% are spouses or partners or family members of athletes uh, that are racing that day. It could come in a variety of ways. We certainly saw an increase of, and I can tell by the addresses and whether when they sign up on the database, if there were probably a family member coming out and wanted to do a, a morning thing. Uniquely this year, again, all athletes and spectators needed to come in on a shuttle bus. But if you volunteered, you could drive to the reservoir, which we provided them with a pass directions as you got in your email when you came in. I was very specific in providing those details. And so we saw an increase of spouses, partners, and you know, they all checked in at the volunteer desk, so to speak, the volunteer tent. So a lot of conversations and they wanted to drive their athlete to the reservoir because they can do that if they volunteered and then they wound up helping and having a great time. So I'd say 5% of that community, I would say is between, I don't know if I'm guessing 80% volunteers are high school students, 5% are families, friends, spouses, 
maybe communities makes up for the rest of the 15%. And in that community, I'm going to say there's triathlon groups, such as for Boulder, there's Rocky Mountain Tri Club. And there's also swim organizations, so club sports that aren't aren't with a high school group. So we had Red Tails Longmont Swim Club. We've had Regis College Veterans this year. So I would say I would fit 15% into the community, 5% friends, family of athletes on that day, and the rest are truly high school sports teams. How often is getting volunteers a problem for a race? Like we saw in Kona back in what last year, Kona, where it was split into a two-day event for the first time. There were so many problems getting enough volunteers that they had to actually cut aid stations on the run, which was, I could tell you, a problem. And I'm just curious, is that is that common that that becomes an issue for races? And if so, how is it handled? I am not familiar with what happened in Kona last year. So I'm hearing that for the first time. I would say it can absolutely be difficult as I've grown in this capacity of as a volunteer director. I'm, I do become very paranoid. I can tell you three weeks before the race, I'm having conversations with my race director this year. And I was just like, I don't know what to do. I have no signups. And so I'm becoming a little bit reliable on the numbers of signups because we ask them for Ironman to do that, sign a waiver, um, and we do a background screening, not a background check, just because we do have so many high school students and we want to make sure we are protective of those, of who we are bringing in and who to, who they are working with. So we do have a sign-up system and I became very reliable on the numbers and I start to sweat. And that's what I do. That's what I focus on. And that's when I sort of go into overdrive and just, gosh, I really just start to think out of the box. And I'll use the example just a minute ago, I mentioned the Longmont swim team, the Red Tails, and it's just a youth swim club. I was actually at a conference at a hotel in Boulder that I was an attendee at. And in my conference room and in the next conference room was this Red Tail swim conference families. And I walked by and I was like, oh, that's a swim team. And in my head, I was like, oh my gosh, we have grant funding. I can help this swim team. And I approached a parent who happened to be the right parent and said, would your organization like to come out and, and work, help us out? And this was when we had uh, a full Ironman. Um, I have an aid station that I need a group for. I need 20 volunteers. Here's what it is. And sort of gave them this feel. And now they've been with us since I think they joined in 2018. Um, and then we didn't have it in 20, uh, because of COVID, but they've been a part of our Ironman volunteers in the Boulder market since 2018, just because I was walking by. And that's what I'm thinking. I saw a group of Cub Scouts or Boy Scouts, I'm not quite sure, at a farmer's market one day. And I was like, hey guys, I got I got an opportunity for you. You know, and again, I do other races or I work at other races. I don't poach volunteers from those races or, or groups because I don't want to pull from a local race. I don't want to pull from without limits and I don't want to pull from racing underground and steal their volunteer groups. But I'll ask, Oh, I didn't even think about calling something like a civil air patrol or, or, you know, I'll just get an idea and look, Kiwanis is another one that I happen to run into somebody. And so they're like, Oh yeah, I'm part of this organization. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, do you know people? So that's when I start to go into overdrive is when I look at numbers and they're low, but they always, for me, they always seem to, quote unquote, work out. Um, is that typical? You, 
Is that typical that signups come late? And so it gives you a yes. lot of stress and then last minute, right. all of a sudden it just it populates? For me and my event planning background and personality, yes, it drives me, it gives me stress. My co-volunteer director is a high school teacher for a living. And, and she's like, meh, they'll sign up the day before. And I was like, no, they have to sign up now. And she's like, meh, trust me, they'll sign up. Trust me, I know these, I know this demographic. So yeah, it does. It, it it does. It's great that we can complement each other's in that way. She's very direct in how she writes her emails, and I'm the cushy one, and you know, makes it all soft and pretty, and paints a rainbow and unicorns. And she's like, "Yep, you're going to show up this day, and you're going to do this." And it's great. It's great to have that directness and not worry about numbers. And it's also great to have the fluff and the fluff person who worries about numbers. So, but yeah, I think that's common in every market, and it's a conversation with your race director if you're feeling things aren't. How can we change this? Can it be one-sided? With COVID, the practice of athletes being responsible for picking up their own cups came into practice, came into play. So can we have less volunteers in front of the tables handing out the actual cups and bring them behind the table to just stock it? You know, there are always ways to think about um, changing what the need is. And, And, you know, it, when when Ironman staff comes, because most of them travel from races, some are local. We're lucky that we have uh, the Ironman warehouse is here in, in Louisville. So we're lucky to have a lot of people who live in Colorado that work our race. But many of them come in and they travel from race to race. And they're sort of the experts. And they come in and they assess the course. Let's say they go out on the run course and they're like, no, we don't need 20 volunteers as directionals or pointers, but I need five and I need them in these spots. And so you're you're able to like say, what are your must-haves and what are your would-like-to-haves and how can we how can we meet that with the numbers that we do have? That's fascinating that stuff. I, I have one last question for you, Jen. In the yes. past, you, you volunteered once for every four races you do. So now, do you race once for every four that you volunteer at? Not at all. <laughs> so your racing career I, is over. You're just full-time volunteer. I have, yeah, I have chosen, I just... I would say I lost that loving feeling just with mental stress of preparing for races. And so I've chose to step away from that, but still a thousand percent involved, if not more. I mean, if you look at it, who's the smart one? You just have to pay to pay to do an Ironman race. And now because I'm a volunteer director, now they pay me to be there. So who who's really winning there? <laughs> Well, Jen, thank you so much for taking some time to join me on the podcast today. Jen Zabo is the volunteer coordinator for the Boulder 70.3, among many other events. She's also the senior event planner on CU Boulder's campus. Jen, thanks again. It was a great conversation. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for having me and encourage everyone to go out and volunteer at a race. And that's it for another episode. The TriDoc Podcast is produced and edited by me, Jeff Sankoff, along with my interns. I'm Agent Johnson. This is Special Agent Johnson. Oh, how you doing? No relation. I'm, uh... I'm Jeff Sankoff, uh, the, the TriDoc. I'm in charge here. Not anymore. Those interns are Ian Johnson and Ben Johnson. You can find the show notes for everything discussed on the show today, as well as archives of previous episodes at tridocpodcast.com. Do you have questions about any of the issues discussed on this episode, or do you have a question that you'd like for me to consider answering on a future episode? 
send me an email at tri underscore doc at icloud.com or join the private TriDoc Podcast Facebook group on Facebook and you can submit your questions there. If you're interested in coaching services, please visit tridoccoaching.com or lifesportcoaching.com where you can find a lot of information about me and the services that I provide. You can also follow me on the TriDoc Podcast Facebook page, TriDoc Coaching on Instagram, and the TriDoc Coaching YouTube channel. If you enjoyed this podcast, I hope that you'll consider leaving me a rating and a review, as well as subscribe to the show wherever you download it. And of course, there's always the option of becoming a supporter of the podcast at patreon.com forward slash Podcast. The music heard at the beginning and the end of the show is radio by Empty Hours and is used with permission. This song and many others like it can be found at ReverbNation.com, where I hope that you'll visit and give small independent bands a chance. The TriDoc Podcast will be back again soon with another medical question for me to answer and another interview with someone in the world of multisport. Until then, remember 1121, train hard, train healthy.